bedtime? It's a little late, huh? Good evening to you all. Tonight I thought I would take up the theme of working with thought. Now, have you noticed any thoughts? One or two? Do you think they're legit? I ask that because, you know, many times when people who haven't been introduced to practice first hear about meditation, they'll say something like, Oh, I'd I'd like to do it, but, you know, I can never stop thinking. There's no way I could stop thinking. Having the idea in their mind that there's some sort of binary there, that if you're meditating, you can't be thinking, and if you're thinking, you can't be meditating. Do you have that idea? Did you have that idea at some point, that this was like a close the door and don't let them in kind of activity. It's really common. But that would be very unfortunate if it were the case that we couldn't practice if there was thinking because we think all the time. So if we couldn't practice because there was thinking in a certain kind of way, that would mean that this uh, pattern of thought that we all share as human beings would not be integrated into our cultivation of wisdom. So what would that mean? Well, that would mean we'd be sitting on a cushion and maybe doing something And in the meantime, when we got up, say we succeeded in totally suppressing thought when we got up, well, there it would all be again, right? But our mind never would have the experience of actually touching thought, recognizing thought, practicing directly with thought within the context of meditation. So that would be very unfortunate, especially since for most human beings, the experience of being in the upstairs, totally lost in rumination and other forms of thinking, is the predominant experience. And that's kind of one of the shocks that we experience, isn't it? When we first sit down and try to follow meditation instructions that start with something like, you know, find the body and (laughs) the sensations in the body and then maybe the instruction is related to finding the breath or noticing hearing as it arises and you go, okay, going to be with the breath. Don't even get like a a whole one out. (laughs) It's just like gone, gone, 
whoop, like a bar of wet soap, whoop, 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 right back into the whole, whole pattern of the mind, you know, running around and getting lost in its own mental proliferation. Now, as we have seen, a, a silent mind is not a common thing. And when the mind does become completely quiet in meditation, it's usually because wise con- concentration is very strong and the mind has been secluded, and in many cases largely secluded um, from other gross sensory experiences as well. I remember the first time I had this experience of, you know, practicing and all of a sudden there was a sense that my thoughts were turned off. Like, they weren't happening. And my mind's reaction was very much like that. (laughs) It was kind of creepy, a little bit creepy. It's like a a little bit like, uh, uh, oh, (laughs) you know, where is this going? Because, you know, it's such a familiar state that when it's like radically different like that, it makes you realize, okay, this is something, this is like a different zone. And maybe with this there's even a little bit of, I don't know where this is going, but that would be a thought. <laughs> so it's not a usual, a usual thing for humans. I mean, we do have sometimes when we're very absorbed in something, for instance, and we go nonverbal, like um, maybe if we're listening to music, we find very moving or, you know, we're engaged in, I don't know, uh, knitting or uh, uh, carpentry or something, where for periods of time it kind of, this thinking thing cuts out. But it's an unusual experience. Most, most of the time for most of us. But in meditation practice and the kind of practice that we're doing here, there will be thoughts. There will be a lot of thoughts. So the question is, how do we relate to the presence of thought when it's there? Is there a way that we can actually include this in practice as a meditation object rather than thinking it shouldn't be happening and we need to avoid it at all costs? Because that's leaves that whole field of potential cultivation of wisdom untouched, untilled. And it sets up, us up to struggle against what is a very natural kind of arising at the mind door. Now, if you were doing concentration practice, say for jhana, the instruction, general instruction, would be to turn away from thoughts, right? If you were just working with the breath, for instance, for samadhi, in the interest of deepening concentration. The usual instruction is you just discard thoughts if you can. You don't attend to them. You stay steady, 
with the meditation object. You don't even acknowledge them if you can get away with it. And then in Brahma-vihara practice, it gets very interesting because in Brahma-vihara practice, we're actually using thought, are we not? So when you're sitting down and calling forth a memory or a felt sense or an image of somebody else, and then you're offering the phrases of goodwill. You're choosing and offering those phrases of goodwill. You're choosing to think. You're choosing wise thought. You're developing the intention to cultivate loving kindness by internally reciting in whatever way you do it, the metaphrases. So we see with this that thought can actually uh, be part of a practice of purification and development of mind. In other practices, you might be encouraged to do wise reflection. For instance, a teacher, even in this process of doing Vipassana, a teacher may give you the the assignment in a teacher meeting to uh, go consider your wholesome qualities of mind. Or to, you know, uh, consider the wholesome deeds that you've done in your life. To choose to think about those. To choose to remember those. To choose to think about those. In some cases, to write them down. And then in a practice meeting, tell them to the teacher. So we can't say that there's no role for thought in practice. In some practices, thought is the basis or one of the bases of the practice itself. In Vipassana practice, it's one of the arisings that we practice with in order to liberate the mind from deluded craving. So in Vipassana, we invite the arising of liberating wisdom by investigating the conditioned nature of every experience that we can have. And if you look at how the instructions start, if you look at the Satipatthana Sutta where the Buddha lays out the instructions for uh, this practice that we're doing, you'll notice he starts with the body. He starts with mindfulness of the body. Now, I think that's a brilliant strategic choice, personally. <laughs> Why? Because by focusing in that way initially, the attention is turned towards something that is immediate, clearly in real time, and available. Right? The sensation of sitting, the sensations of walking, maybe the sensations of breath, the sensations of hearing. Here and now, if you're practicing with the five senses, especially with body sensations, it's clear. You're always in present tense. You can't experience the body without being in the present tense gear. 
Then the progression of the instructions, of course, goes to Vedana, this feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neither. That's there because that so strongly conditions in the absence of wisdom and mindfulness, so strongly conditions the mind towards uh, deluded craving. And that's why that's individually pointed out. It's a very potent thing to know in real time. And then the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind, of course. Emotions, intentions, mind states, thoughts, thoughts are part of what arises at the mind door. But they don't necessarily just arise as purely mental experiences. You have noticed this at this point. Have you noticed any occasions where there has been a relationship between a thought and an emotion? or a body sensation and a thought, or between Vedna and a thought. We have a very chained kind of subjective experience, right? In meditation, we incline the mind to be in real time noticing what is happening practicing with what is most immediately present there, what's in our awareness. When we pay attention more closely, we start to see things like sensation in the body, unpleasant Vedana. The mind goes, "Uh uh-oh, I better be careful. I might not be able to walk. Then the emotion arises, fear, fear. And the thought goes, I wonder what I should do. Should I get up? Should I leave? What if I don't stay, you know? Is that just like giving in to things or should I get up? then there maybe there arises a, another hindrance, the hindrance of doubt, where the mind kind of vacillates around about what to happen. And then maybe there arises the thoughts of, oh, what should I do about this? I'm not sure what I should do about it. I think I'll go back to the breath. So there are any number of these chains, right? All of this is happening in real time. This is unfolding one thing after another in real time. One thing conditioning or being part of the causes and conditions of the arising of the next experience. And you see thought is right in there. Sometimes you might have the experience of a thought like, That person never holds the door for me. 
Yeah, and they're late too. <laughs> the thought. The thought. And then there arises in the body a set of sensations. Maybe it's contraction. Right? Or maybe it's a more fiery version of anger. And now you recognize heat in the body. Heat is present. Heat. And then maybe the thought arises, I shouldn't be angry. I'm a yogi. (laughs) And then there maybe arises the emotion, I am a failure at this. And then there maybe arises in the body a sense of slumping or contraction or energy disappearing. Have you noticed any of these kinds of things? You see that the sensory experience can condition the arising of thoughts. Vedana can condition the arising of thoughts. Mind states can condition the arising of thoughts and vice versa. Thoughts can condition the arising of body states and sensations. Thoughts can condition the arising of mental states. Thoughts can condition the arising of Vedana. They have a lot of power over our lives if they're not seen. They dominate our experience and can lead us in some very strange places. One thing about thought that's so interesting, of course, is that most of it is never externally articulated. Right? Like most of our thoughts are just kind of private, personal experiences, right? We don't all go around, you know, like just jabbering our stream of consciousness all day, right? Although I've sometimes thought that if we ever um, had some ability to like uh, put little wireless speakers on the top of your heads that could all be turned on simultaneously (laughs) where your thoughts would be like broadcast out into the room, it would be tremendously normalizing. I think you would see that you are not alone in your thoughts. And most of your thoughts are not as unique and strange compared to the thoughts of others as you might think. Well, you know, maybe if you keep thinking you're a lizard or something. (laughs) I'm a lizard, I'm a lizard, I'm a lizard. Okay, that might be unique. But I would say 98, 99% of them, you're, you're right in there on the bell curve somewhere. Not so different. So in order to be free, we have to find wise relationship to this phenomenon. Because otherwise... This is is the uninterrogated 
seat of identity view and self-view. Isn't it thought? I mean, there's a certain kind of way where we identify with our body. We know that, right? But the body has got its stability. You know, it ages and changes and things, but usually that's, that's more gradual. With our, but our thoughts, they're really very quicksilver, aren't they? They're like all over the place. I remember one of the most interesting teaching experiences I ever had. Um, I got asked by some somebody who had done this retreat, who worked with young people, like you know, high school age uh, young people, and they would do these retreats for them. And you know, they were obviously modified retreats because you know you're not going to like plug. 14-year-olds into, you know, this kind of setting in this kind of way. So they were young. So, you know, the first introductory thing uh, on the first day was like playing hacky sack with the youth. And I, th- I think the kid I was paired with was a little surprised. Anyway, uh, I noticed mana arise, you know, like... I may look old, kid, but <laughs> I still got some moves when I need them. So anyway, <laughs> mana, the, the thought, particular self-view, right? But anyway, at, at one point, you know, in the sitting instructions, and I, I was asked to give uh, like a, a Dharma talk right before lunch, and the Dharma talk was along the lines of, what would be most useful for them to know? That's an interesting question to have come forward, right? Okay, I'm going to do some download to this this group of uh, youth who are maybe ranging from like 13 to maybe 17, but most of them are kind of in the mid-range. It's like, this is my one-shot Dharma talk <laughs> with this group. So I was kind of curious about what would come out. And what came out was, are you your thoughts? Are you and your thoughts one and the same? And I can remember there was this this one girl there. And when I said, do you think you're your thoughts? And she went, I put a dumb thing to say. I said, well, for instance, I'll just give you for instance. So, say you've had a hard day at school. It's been tough. You go home. There's cake on the counter. And you go, I've had a hard day at school. I deserve chocolate cake. And so you cut yourself a big slice of chocolate cake and you eat it hour and a half before dinner. And then after you've eaten it, 
you think, why did I eat that cake? I'm trying to take off a little weight so I can do better on the track team. Why did I do that? That's so stupid. I have no discipline. I'm never going to be able to do anything I want. I said, you notice how your thoughts can be like inconsistent? I said, you know what? Another thing about thoughts. You ever notice they can be kind of like mean? You know, they can like be mean at yourself. Or they can be mean towards other people. And then, you know, sometimes when you have those kinds of thoughts and then you, do you notice that then maybe you like feel bad about yourself and then you go, oh, I'm such a mean person. I have those horrible mean thoughts. I'm such a bad person. I shouldn't eat for a week. This was during the period where there's a lot of anorexia stuff here in the in the youth. Still is, I'm sure. I said, you know, the thing about thoughts, they're not all equally reliable. So in a certain kind of way, it's good to know what the thoughts are, but then you want to see if they're really reliable before you follow them. And how would you know they're reliable? Well, you know the ones that are Kind, generous, have some wisdom in them, are self-supporting. Those are, those are ones you should consider taking advice from. And the other ones, the ones that are mean or really critical, that undercut you, that break your confidence in yourself, that are cruel to other people, well, maybe those not. Those ones, those ones are painful. You don't want to have more of those because they're not going anywhere you want to go. So this is all a pointing right to one of the first ways to understand and work with thought is when they arise to apply the question, is this wholesome or unwholesome? Is this skillful or unskillful? Not as a condemning of the unskillful, but as a mindful recognition of it that that is the case. Oh, unwholesome. Oh, this is, this is cruelty. Or this is greed, craving, thirsting. Oh, that's what it is, okay. But to notice that with evenness of mind, with mindfulness, Recognizing that what you're seeing is a conditioned arising at the mind door. A conditioned arising. It's an event. 
It's an event. Now, do you think you could sit down and decide from now on you're only going to think wise and beneficial thoughts? Could you do it? Ever, anybody ever had the experience of undertaking some really aggressive thought restriction when the mind was in a state of reactivity to its own content? You ever tried that? It's like, I'm not going to think it, I'm not going to think it, I'm not going to think it. I hate that thought, I'm not going to think it. And doesn't it serve to just kind of like torque up the whole system more? Now, there could be a seed of wisdom in it, right? Like in the recognition of an unskillful thought or an unwholesome thought. But there's a, there's a, a lack of wisdom in knowing what to do in relationship to recognition of its presence. So here with this Vipassana practice, we're actually training the mind to recognize thought as an event and find wise relationship to it. And so a number of the ways of working then with thought have to do with relating to it in ways that heighten mindfulness in relationship to its presence and mitigate getting lost in it or becoming more identified with its content. So sometimes thought can carry us away from practice and can lead us deeper into into delusion. But it need not be that way. Sometimes we can actually wake up in relationship to thought. So if we can experience thought as sharing the three universal characteristics in the same way that a sound does, we can relate to it as an object of meditation and include it. So thoughts can be an obstruction and a distraction, or they can be a stepping stone to you waking up. And deep understanding of thought can liberate the mind from delusion and from its struggle with its own mental content. But if we don't have a wise relationship with it, it can dominate many of our sittings and be a source of internal conflict. But if you can find a place for it in practice, you go a long way towards taming the unskillful tendencies of the mind. Because most of the unskillful tendencies of the mind are expressed through thought. The Buddha says in uh, the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. Because even something like, for instance, acting out of craving or acting out of rage, that's coming out of thought. It might be conscious, it might not be conscious. 
Our thoughts shape the heart-mind and govern or largely govern behavior. So in, in looking at, for instance, the precepts, we practice restraint and wise behavior by not doing certain things. Things that we might otherwise be inclined to do. Things that we might have thoughts that uh, encourage us to do. We may have thoughts come to mind, for instance, in relationship to speech, where the thought is, I just would like to tell her to, you know, something. I just want to say this thing. It's like right there at the tip of my tongue. It's an inner thought. It's about ready to erupt into, into action, right, in the form of speech. But if we know, see the arising of these impulses, these tendencies, we have the option for choosing to act on or not act on. And in that way we shape our behavior and we shape our character. We develop the heart and mind in particular ways that have some wisdom. In the absence of mindfulness with proliferating thoughts and all their internal contradictions and irrationalities, we suffer a lot. And the very proliferation of thought disconnects us from other forms of knowing. Because we're just rummaging around up in our head. We live in our head, and our head is often a very unpleasant and distorted place to be. So let's look at some particular ways to practice with thought. And there's a lot that could be potentially said about this. Bonte's got a whole talk on working with distracting thoughts that comes right out of the suttas. That takes you down the the list of strategies for this. But I'll mention just a few. One is to incline the mind to recognize that thoughts are events. They're mental events. They're mental arisings. And this means they have a beginning, a middle, and an end, just like any other conditioned arising. Just, just in the same way that, that hearing can arise, a sound, beginning, middle, end. It's the same thing with thoughts. The second tip is don't turn their presence into a problem. Because when the condition for a thought to be there, to, to arise is there, it will arise. I'm not going to think. I'm not going to think is a thought. <laughs> don't let it kid you. <laughs> so we don't want to indulge thinking 
We don't want to get involved with it or struggle with it. We want to know it as an event. Now, I want to speak to this point of enmeshment with thought and our our aspirations to be happy. So, there's a certain thing that sometimes happens on retreat, which is a very natural thing to happen, which is one comes on retreat and either consciously or semi-consciously has something they want to work on. Something they want to work on. So, given that, you know, your daily schedule is sitting in the med hall with your eyes mostly closed and not doing anything, and then the other part of your day is walking back and forth not otherwise doing anything and trying to be mindful in the in-between periods, it's interesting to consider what you're working on. Whatever it is, it's not like uh, blacksmithing or something. You're not like actually making something with your activities. So that must mean you're thinking about doing something with your mind. Perhaps something specific with your mind. Now, general aspirations are very valuable. For instance, I wish to cultivate and strengthen what is already wholesome in myself. I want to fix myself so I'm not like this anymore. Mm, A little bit too broad a goal. Because when you take, take it up that way, you're sitting down with the intention of making your experience other than what you might find it actually is if you were just very simply paying attention to what's present. You know, sometimes people will... So you're complexifying, right? You're giving your mind a double task. You're sort of sitting down, being present with what's there, but you're really looking for how you can do something to yourself. You know, sometimes people will come on retreat and they're like, okay, I want to go on retreat. I want to figure out my relationship with my mother. Or I want to go on a retreat and I want to figure out why I am the way I am and, you know, why I do the things that I do. Well, the Buddha would... (laughs) would give you an answer to that one, it would be causes and conditions, right? Or I want to kind of like work on this psycho-emotional pattern that I've noticed about myself, or I want to clear out this energy blockage that I have in my system that I can tell is an energy blockage because 
feels this way in my body and I don't like it. Now these are all like normal kinds of things in the range of what we want, right? And there is some self-compassion in there. Yes, it would be good sometimes to have insight into these things. There may be wisdom in wanting to suffer less in this particular way. That's part of a personality pattern. But when we start complexifying what's happening here, um, really breaks down the power of the purification. It's an interesting thing that I've seen in my own practice and I've seen many times in other people's practices that the most potent, the most valuable insights that you get into the kinds of things that I've just mentioned don't come about by sitting on the meditation cushion and choosing to chew on them. They come when you're just paying attention to what's immediately present. Sometimes we have these, the gift, seemingly out of nowhere, of the arising of a very important insight out of nowhere. Not because you're thinking about it and trying to, you know, dig your way through your psycho-emotional material to understand it so you can reform it. There's a title of a book by Ann Lindbergh. It's called something like Gifts from the Sea. And I, I sometimes think of that title in relationship to the way that the mind can open in very sudden and unexpected ways, in ways that are very useful to us in terms of our our understanding of ourselves on this very personal, individual level. But it doesn't come about through indulging thought. That's the interesting thing. Because Indulging thought is usually just recycling your stuff. Where's, where's the new going to come from? It's through purification of the heart and mind. Changing the contribution that attention is making to the present moment experience. So I I mentioned before some of the things that we can notice about thought. We can notice whether it's wholesome or unwholesome. We can notice whether there's a hindrance there in the thought. We can notice wholesome intentions and states which can be expressed as thoughts. You see somebody who's having a a hard day? Yeah, you're not supposed to be really looking at them. But sometimes, you know, you notice. Okay, when your heart goes, uh, may you be at ease. Right? Wholesome thought, wholesome mind state. We can investigate 
thoughts as they arise exist and pass away. Sometimes you can count thoughts. Have you ever done that exercise? Or for some period of time sitting, most easily done, you sit, you establish mindfulness, and you just sit there. And for a period of time, you just incline the mind to recognize thought as it arises. Maybe using counting in the same way that you would count the breath. I talked earlier about noticing and noting when thought arises in association with a mental state or emotion. Oh, this is sadness. Sadness feels like this. First thought is, I'm really lonely. Oh, sadness. Sadness is like this. Sadness, the body state. Heaviness, you know, maybe a little turning inward, maybe loss of energy, maybe the sensory experience of the tear. You can bring additional uh, investigation by classifying thoughts by type. Oh, this is planning. This is reviewing. This is speculating. This is fantasizing. This is wanting. This is angry. This is doubting. So these all have their own signature. We can look at whether the thought is of the present, of the past, of the future. And Vedna is a really good thing to look at, especially if you're having repetitive cycles of thought. To actually look, is this pleasant, is it unpleasant, is it more neither pleasant nor unpleasant? You can see that Vedana arises in relationship to mental events like thoughts as well as physical sensations. You could investigate thought by looking at its nature. What do I mean by that? So how does it, how does it arise? What is going on that leads you to recognize it's a thought or thoughts? Is it like internal words? Some people think like almost like they hear the words. For some people, they see it. They may see words or they may just have a visual form of thought or a kinesthetic form of thought, almost like a felt thought. And it's a really fertile place to investigate the self-sense. Notice if there is a self-sense arising in relationship to thought. Is it dense? Is it sticky? Is it absent? Is it transparent, this self-sense? Is it suffering? Is it not suffering? And then you can notice the self-view that might arise from thought. You've had the teachings on mana. Have you had that mentioned in the hall yet? 
usually translated as conceit. But it doesn't necessarily mean, I think I'm all that kind of conceit. Although it may. But it's this the mind's tendency to reify our experience and reify the, exist, the experience of others and then kind of like see how, we're, how we stand in relationship to our idea about how they are. You know, am I better than this person? Am I worse than this person? Am I the same as this person? It's all based on ideas, right? There's really not, nothing much to it. It's just the, the way we're kind of ranking ourselves imaginarily in the moment in relationship to our ideas about how someone else is. And that is sometimes really visible in thought, right? Like, oh God, that guy's such a good yogi. I wish I could be like him. Mana, worse than. Or, I got the, I got the, Walking meditation glide. <laughs> that would probably be the better, better than. And the same as, yeah, we're pro- all all the you know, the same. <laughs> yeah, everybody here's a bozo. They're just trying to look good. <laughs> so. You know, there's a, a lot of nuance in this. You know, there are other ways that you can work. Thought substitution, redirection of the mind away from thinking, turning to another object. And in some cases, like, just ain't going to go there. Suppression. Not as a first strategy. So there are many different ways to, to work with thinking. And you know, at some points in practice, even in Vipassana practice, it may be indicated or skillful to actually abandon or turn away from thought altogether in order to develop concentration and wisdom, which can come about through deeper investigation. So there can be periods where, you know, our Dharma instruction whether offered by a teacher or given to ourself as, you know, I think for this period, I'm just going to reestablish awareness with the body. I'm just going to work with the body. Right? I'm going get, to get grounded. I'm going to kind of pull, my, pull awareness in a little bit, develop a little more concentration, a little more steadiness. I'm going to work in that way for a while. And the, the Buddha says uh, a lot about a lot about thinking, a lot about uh, that's interesting. There are at least uh, two or three major suttas that that address it. He actually did the the thought sorting experiment. I find that very interesting. Sit down, watch his mind. Okay. This one goes... Wholesome. This one goes unwholesome. I don't know if he had a neutral pile. Doesn't say that, but 
because it's wholesome and wholesome. How do you know it's wholesome? It causes no harm to self or others. How do you know if it's unwholesome? It's not for the benefit and well-being of myself or others. If I indulge this and I strengthen this tendency of mine. So an interesting thing about this practice, of course, we're bringing the, the wisdom perspective to the arising of these impermanent mental experiences. They become transparent to us. We see them. Identification is loosened in relationship to them, which incidentally provides the platform for better stewardship and relationship to them. We start to get a better intuitive feel for which ones are reliable because they're coming out of wisdom and something wholesome and which ones are like, uh, maybe not one that you want to let lead you around by the nose. And, you know, sometimes on these retreats, people ask, you know, questions along the lines of, well, what do I get to take home with me? Well, if you develop some capacity to recognize uh, what's going on in the mind in this kind of way, that's going to be really, really useful. And then the, the next time, you know, you see a big chocolate cake an hour and a half before dinner, you can choose to have a slice or choose not to have a slice and be uh, a little less driven and conflicted in making that discernment. So let's sit for a minute and let my thoughts quiet down to support your thoughts and quieting down. Thinking wisely, may our practice be for our own benefit and for that of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.